Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. As a breeder, you take great pride in your litters and you do everything possible to ensure they go on to live happy, healthy lives. Set them up for future success with a special offer from Trupanion, medical insurance for pets. A Trupanion policy provides coverage for unexpected new accidents and illnesses, which means less worry and more fun with your pet. By signing up for Trupanion's free breeder support program, you can send your litters home with an exclusive Trupanion offer that waives the waiting periods, so coverage goes into effect immediately. No more worrying about puppies getting into mischief in their new homes. Signing up is easy. Just follow the link on my partner page, and don't forget to mention Pure Dog Talk sent you. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I am very excited Today's guest is someone I have followed his writings for a number of years now, and getting to have him join us here on the podcast is just very exciting. So Mr. Richard Reynolds is joining us today. This is the first part of a two-part episode. We are going to talk about rat hunting and foxhounds and all kinds of fabulous historical stuff because he is a brain trust of all things history in purebred dogs, and I am thrilled to have him. So welcome, Richard. How are you doing? Good morning. Good afternoon. Eh, it's daytime. We're good. <laughs> so one of our favorite things here on Pure Dog Talk is the 411. So give us a little bit of background, a little history, how you got started and involved with purebred dogs, and it's sort of morphed over the years, I know. So let's have some storytelling. Well, I wish I had some great things to tell you, but unfortunately, my whole involvement started from a National Geographic magazine, and I was a young lad in his early teens, and I came upon a National Geographic magazine that had an article, Westminster, the World Series of Dogdom. Yes. And what year was that? It might have been about 1949, maybe 1950, <laughs> somewhere in there. Nice. And all of my colleagues had Playboy magazine hidden under their mattresses. And I kind of had National Geographic, not for the same purpose, of course, but <laughs> it kind of got me started on the way. And I lost track of that magazine. Oh, I don't know. About 10 years ago, I paid $50 to buy another copy of it. I love it. So I still have it, and I reserve the right to look at it every once in a while. But that kind of started it. I thought it would be nice to be a veterinarian, and that didn't work out for any number of reasons, not the least of which was my feelings about dogs and so forth and so on. I just couldn't do what some veterinarians do. So we started looking for alternatives and I acquired a beagle for the princely sum of $35 from a gentleman who hunted them. And as they say, the rest was history. The first beagle fell somewhat short of being a show dog, but 
The next one was a show dog and cost a great deal more than $35, although I'm not sure it was worth much more. And that kind of got me started with the dog show thing. But I went through the normal thing, normal routine as a veterinary assistant. I worked on a farm for my summers in high school and all kinds of jobs relating to animals. And eventually just wound my way through dogs. And you were a professional handler, you told me. Yes, I did that. That seemed like something I could do. I was never a grade A professional handler, although I had an all-breed license to do so from the AKC. Back in the day when professional handlers were licensed, yes. I was very proud of that. Well, if you got an all-breed license, that took some effort. (laughs) Well, it wasn't as hard to get at that point as it is now, but I was proud of it. I did handling, mostly beagles and things like that with the occasional carrier. And so you talk about beagles and the occasional terrier, and I think you have a fascinating combination of experience and life experience with both of those particular varieties of dogs, hounds in the foxhound world and terriers in what you are perhaps most commonly known for now, which is the hunting terriers and the ratting in New York City. Well, it's really not two different things. Terriers, by definition, kind of work with hounds. And my involvement with foxhounds was what led me directly to terriers. See, that's what I hoped you were going to say. That is awesome. So tell us that story. Well, there are so many stories there. I thought it would be a fine idea. I wasn't very good at breeding beagles. I bred a lot of beagles and I didn't breed very many good ones. They won enough, but I never bred anything I liked. And the gene pool at that point, and we're talking now into the early 70s, the gene pool was a mess. There were different types of beagles. There were field trial beagles. There were hunting beagles. There were race beagles. There were show beagles. There was pet beagles. There was everything. And none of them got together. So some wise person, Judy Anderson actually, suggested that I... Try foxhounds because the gene pool was so stable that even I couldn't mess it up. So we eventually came by a foxhound. I had a friend who was a master of foxhounds, and she very kindly gave me a hound. And then we picked up hounds here and there, and we had a few. And eventually it got to the point where we thought we wanted to import hounds from England. But in order to do that, you have to be a pack recognized by the Masters of Foxhounds Association. That shouldn't take any more than 20 or 30 years to set up and get it going. We actually cut some time off of that, but we had a lot of help. My mentor was a lady of not inconsiderable influence by the name of Nancy Penn Smith Annam, with emphasis on the pen. And she kind of ran the state of Pennsylvania, and she introduced me to a guy who was called Master. And that was a little hard for me. But he was the 10th Duke of Beaufort. And he said, if you go over and knock on his door, he'll welcome you in and so forth. And I found myself knocking on the door of Badminton House in England. And the Duke himself took me in about three weeks of his time telling me about fox hunting and sent me home with four of his very best hounds to get me started. Wow. And the rest is basically history. 
So for listeners, the distinction is the English foxhound and the American foxhound. You were primarily working, I take it, with English foxhounds. Not primarily, only. Okay. And just in case that isn't restrictive enough, within that genre, old English foxhounds, Mm -hmm. which are what the majority of the folks are used to seeing in the ring. Mm -hmm. And so I will leave it to you to help our listeners who may not be aware of the variety differences between the English and the American foxhound. Just draw them a picture so that they can see the difference real quick. The old English foxhound is a heavier, larger, level top line. Picture, if you will, a bulldozer on feet. (laughs) The American foxhound is lighter, leggier, has a slight rise over the loin to give it speed. It's, of course, descended from the English foxhounds, Mm -hmm. but it's not exactly the same, and they both have their purposes. And like all of the hounds and terriers, that purpose is directly related to the country, the land where the dog hunts and works. American foxhounds are suited to the wide open spaces of the United States, and the English are suited to the gorse hedges and stone walls and whatever of England. Right. But we found them very useful in Pennsylvania, where I back because we have a wonderful agricultural phenomenon known as the multiflora rose. And to get through that, the English foxhounds were very good. Right. Massive, thicker through the chest, heavier boned. I always think that the English foxhound looks like a beagle that you pumped it up with an inflator and that an American foxhound is racier. And while it's still a scent hound, almost looks more like a sight hound to me. Yeah, exactly. To be perfectly honest, the American foxhound has a tendency to hunt by sight as much as it does by scent. Interesting. They're very adaptable at hunting coyotes. In fact, the wisdom of the folks that hunt them has led to modifying the standard upward to give you a little bit more hound to go chase that coyote with. Interesting. Okay. And so with the English foxhounds, you became then a master. You had your own pack in the U.S., right? Am I saying that right? Am I getting the details right? We had a recognized pack, recognized by the Masters of Foxhounds Association, hunted three days a week out of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. On horseback or on foot? On horseback. Well, it was intended to be on horseback, but I spent very few seasons totally on horseback. I referred to my annual application of plaster, which I've continued today, but not falling off horses. So last thing was an electric scooter that I fell off, but it's still the same effect, you know. (laughs) Road rash. Yeah. Yeah. It was road rash that put me on my back for five weeks. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so how many years were you involved with this pack of foxhounds? Oh, about 15, I guess. Nice. And is that now we transition and we talk about... The terriers, did you bring terriers into the pack to hunt with them? Is that how that started? Oh, yeah. We bred Jack Russell terriers, the short-legged kind, which are quite properly called puddins. You're seeing them now as Russell terriers. Mm -hmm. You get the idea. Back then, they were puddins, and they were very, very effective at 
bolting the fox. The terrier's job, of course, is to go down and convince the fox that it really doesn't want to find shelter underground and get the chase back in business again. Mm -hmm. The terrier's job is not to dispatch the fox. So, yeah, we kept, oh, I don't know, about 20 of these little buggers to perform that function. And how many dogs did you have in the foxhound pack? Just like numbers. Because one of the things I think is so important for people to understand is that foxhound packs, along with many other old-time kennels, keep a lot of dogs, numerically, physically, a lot of dogs. Well, at our peak, I looked out in the backyard and there were 175 hounds out there, together with an ample food supply going in the front and a really, really ample supply of whatever came out the back end, which was a science unto itself anyway. Now, in order to hunt three days a week, you want to have, I'm comfortable with 16, 16 and a half couple of hounds in a pack, which is 32 or 33 hounds. Mm -hmm. In order to keep that going three days a week, you have to have young hounds, old hounds, sick hounds, hounds and whelp, whatever. You need to have maybe two or three times as many as you actually want. You breed a lot of puppies, and a few of them actually make it into the pack. Mm -hmm. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Because, well, 2020, it's Halloween and a full moon on October 31st this year. So, Pure Dog Talk brings you the After Dark Virtual Costume Contest for your dog. The contest is open to everyone. There are rules in the post. The deadline is midnight, October 31st. Winners of the costume contest categories will be announced on November 1st, otherwise known as the Day of the Dead. Amazing, right? Celebrity judges, great prizes. Hope to see you all there. Because, after all, we have to celebrate the lunacy of 2020. So I think that that's really an interesting, I'd like to kind of squirrel off on that for a minute. I interviewed a while back, Bob and Polly Smith talking about fox hunting. And it was some really, really interesting stuff. And I'd love to kind of continue on that deep dive. When you run the dogs in a pack and you're actually hunting them the three days a week, you're not just running just old dogs or just young dogs, right? You're running those in combination is that what you would think of? Oh, yeah. My hobby was going out at night, mostly drunk with one hound and a horse and just riding and chasing something, but not really fox hunting. Fox hunting, you have the pack that's controlled by the huntsman. You have a field of people who go out for various purposes to follow the hounds. You don't know where you're going. You go where the fox takes you. You hunt with the 16 and a half couple hounds and you try to keep them together working as a unit. One dog hunting isn't very effective. 33 dogs hunting is damned effective, but it's still not a guarantee that you're ever going to catch that fox. 
So you'll have, well, if you're lucky in a given pack, you'll have five what's called strike hounds. The strike hounds are able to pick up a scent, cold, warm, whatever, and follow it. And the rest will hark to them and cover ground. And if strike hounds lose the scent, then maybe somebody else will pick it up. But you need all of those hounds in order to make it an efficient day. And unfortunately, the major goal in most box hunts is to show sport to the field who are, after all, paying to be there. And sometimes that supersedes the joy of watching these hounds hunt. And we'd have dry days when it wasn't very exciting. And all of the hounds, no matter how good, all 32 or 33 of them were out there it's called being at fault, and it means you can't find shit. And <laughs> It happens to the best of us. Even bird hunters don't have those days. My huntsman would look back at me, and I'd nod, and off we'd go chasing something that may or may not have been a fox. But we certainly did show sport. I mean, it was grand time jumping over fences, but right? it had very little to do with fox hunting. But we did our share, and... I wanted to breed a pack that was good-looking as well as functional. And did you show these dogs that were in your 175 dogs in your pack? How many of those ever made it to the show ring? Almost all of them at one point or another. Because after all, that was our purpose. One hound we had was a hound that was drafted to be by Nancy Hannum. And the hound's name was Mr. Stewart's Cheshire Winslow. He hunted pretty good, and he was a reasonably good stud dog, but he was a really good show dog. And he was the top of all hound breeds in 1983, won the Quaker Oats Award for the top winning hound. And then he kind of walked out of Westminster in 1984 with the hound group. So having done that, we figured that we were duty bound to get him back to the hunt field the following morning. So He won the group at Westminster on Tuesday night, and he hunted a fox on horseback with the mounted hunt on Wednesday morning. Winslow is a dog that other people who have been interviewed on the podcast have mentioned as being a dog that they saw and were struck by. So if you can talk a little bit about his career, who showed him, all of that, that would be great for our listeners who have heard other guests mention him. Well, I started showing him because, well, he was drafted to me as a result of a favor that I did for Mrs. Hannum. And actually, I'll tell you how he came to us. Nobody knows that. This will be an exclusive to your show. Excellent. I love breaking news on Pure Dog Talk is my favorite thing. But we were having, at the time, a lot of brucellosis going around amongst the foxhound packs. And nobody was breeding, and those that were weren't having puppies. It was a very dry time. It takes an awful lot of puppies to keep a fox hunt going. And Mrs. Hannum called me, and she said, well, you're having puppies. She said, how are you doing that? And I said, well, it's artificial insemination. And like all fox hunts, she was fairly old school. I didn't want to tell her that artificial insemination wouldn't prevent brucellosis, but what the hell, it sounded good. So we went through this whole thing, and she said, could you come down and show my huntsman how to do this? Because I need to do this. I need puppies. You never said no to Mrs. Hannum, and so I said, certainly, I'll be there. 
And we set a date and time. And the morning I was to leave to go down, it was about a three-hour drive to get there. She called. She said, well, would it be all right if some of the other huntsmen from some of the neighboring hunts came and watched this? Yes, ma'am, whatever you like. So at that point, I got to the kennel, and I was greeted by five huntsmen properly attired in their white kennel coats and bowler hats standing around with fairly long faces wondering what in the hell this whole thing was going to amount to. And they were obviously ordered to be there under penalty of death. You can tell by the look of their faces. And I explained to them what we were doing and how we were going to go about it. And we were going to check the viability of the semen and inseminate the bitch. Okay, well, that was fine. And then we got around to extricating the semen from the stud dog. Well, you got five guys there, all of whom are British with a proper upbringing. And all you had to do was look at the expression on their faces and know that this was never, ever, ever going to happen. Not in my lifetime and certainly not in theirs. I can hear it now. Yes, ma'am, we tried, but it just didn't work. <laughs> and certainly we did it, ma'am. Yes. Oh. We got through this whole thing, and these guys all swore that they were going to become experts in side-by-side artificial insemination, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but Mrs. Hannum coming down to the kennel. And she immediately took stock of the situation and said, well, now all you gentlemen will certainly want to do this, and I'll be checking up on you. She turned to me and she said, well, you know, in return for your kindness coming down here, I'll give you a hound. I know you need hounds. I'll give you a hound. I said, well, thank you very much, you know. And she said, oh, just go out there and pick out anyone you want. <laughs> and and, and I'll, I'll give it to you. Oh, my gosh. Well, I was not crazy. I went to the huntsman, who was Gerald Keel, who's retired now, I guess. But I said, Gerald, which one can you live without? And he said, well, go out there in this pen and pick one. He said, those are all young hounds, and they're all coming along, but they're not made up yet. So I went out, and I picked out a hound, and the hound that I picked out was Winslow. And we took him out, and he'd been hunted that day or the day before, and he was a little rough around the edges. But I brought him back to New York because I was living in New York, and I had this fairly wild foxhound running batshit crazy in the car on the way home. And I took him out, and my friend who had a boarding kennel said, oh, my God, that's the most beautiful hound I'd ever seen. Well, I didn't realize it at the time. But anyway, Winslow became a show dog. Winslow became the top-winning hound. Winslow became a Westminster group winner. So based on that story, when people ask me, how do I get a Westminster group winner? Okay, I have never cried with laughter during a Pure Dog Talk interview. This definitely goes down to the books. That is fabulous. <laughs> okay, collecting myself here. Alan Resnick has been trying to get me to write that story for years. Okay, shout out, Alan. I got you. <laughs> all right, Cruz. Thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. 
The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.